It's time for two in URFM's Pet Chat. And Dr. David Tobret joins me this morning. I'm Jane Klein. Good morning. Afternoon, Good afternoon, David. Hi, Jane. <laughs> and what's our special subject today? Well, I thought we might touch on one of the subjects of cancer, and in particular, mammary cancer in dogs. Mm-hmm. So mm. that's coming up a little later on. Yep. And we'll also be talking... Yep. We're going to follow up from some uh, discussions we had a couple of weeks ago about the bushfire support through the veterinary aspects and talk to Rosalind Nickel, who's the president of the new, uh, Victorian Division sorry, of the AVA, the Veterinary Association, and the work that they've been doing down there in Victoria. That's very pertinent at the moment. I'm mm. sure they've had plenty to do. All yep. that plus your calls. We'll be taking your calls from 12.30 today on 2NURFM right here on Easy Listening 103.7. And David Tabret, your special subject today is... There I am, mammary tumours, which tumors. is a, obviously a type of cancer. And that's a real, cancer's a really catch-all phrase for so many different things. But I just thought we'd jump into that topic a little bit because there's some really pertinent, uh, pertinent information and things that people can do to prevent uh, the incidence of this. Now, it's, interestingly, the incidence of uh, mammary tumours in dogs is about three times the incidence of mammary tumours, breast cancer in um, women. Uh, so... You know, it's a pretty big subject. Um, the the thing that we see with uh, the risk factors in people aren't the risk factors in dogs. So there is... That's interesting. Yeah, there's some big differences and probably getting into the tissue typing and the type of hormonal influences and so on is quite different because obviously the hormonal uh, influences in dogs is quite different in people. Now, the, um, the interesting thing is that uh, what we do see, though, is that as a preventative thing, if you desex your dog before it has its first heat cycle, you markedly decrease the incidence of this, like, like 99% reduction. So it's quite, quite protective. And in fact, if your dog is, your female dog is less than two and a half years of age, even if they have had one or two cycles, if they're less than two and a half years of age, you reduce the incidence down to about 6%. So uh, compared to dogs that haven't been desexed, it uh, tends to hit them a little bit later in life. Um, takes a bit of time to develop. But um, we do see it in younger dogs, although in younger dogs it's thought to be mostly benign. But uh, benign tumours should always be investigated. And what we're talking about is a lump on the belly of the dog along the, the line of the um, nipples, the mammary glands on either side. Or sometimes they can arise. You'll see them further back in the groin as well. So they can, can be anywhere from the front legs to the back legs on either side. And you can have multiple lumps. One can be benign, one can be malignant and so on. So they shouldn't be ignored because, as I said, there are things that can be done. If they do appear and your dog is older... Um, then there are treatments in terms of what can be done. So left untreated, they can actually spread to the lungs. They can metastasize to the internal organs and they can obviously progress quite severely and, uh, you know, cause the death of the dog. So, so to find them, it's just a good idea, is it, to patch your dog? Just, yeah, that's right. And you just run your hand over your dog and probably a good idea to pick up any lumps and bumps anywhere else as well. And, um, I know a few people, obviously, when come into the vet clinic and say, I found this lump here when I was just patting the dog. And, you know, it might be just a small thing and nothing to worry about, or it might be something more significant like a mammary tumour. So always good to get it checked out. And there's various things that vets can do to help determine before the, you know, saying let's go and head with surgery or whatever. They can actually do staging and looking for evidence of tumours in other areas, like, as I mentioned, in the groin or the lymph nodes that drain the front end of the dog, 
uh, come up underneath the um, armpits, if you like, the front legs, and they're the axillary lymph nodes. So they're actually draining the glands at the front, and the glands further back are draining back into the groin, and so um, the lymph nodes can get swollen if it's a malignant tumour, if it's going to spread. Uh, the lymph nodes act as a filter, but sometimes those stray tumour cells can end up in the lungs most commonly, or the liver and other internal organs. So is surgery always the way? Generally, that's the, that's the best line of treatment, um, although if uh, there is evidence that the tumours have spread to other organs, we um, you know surgery is recommended, but um, the, a lot of dogs may need adjunctive treatment, and that's when we say, okay, chemotherapy. Now, that's a big word and carries such a lot of connotations, and, and rightly so in terms of some of our apprehensions about it, but there's a few points, and it's not just for mammary tumours, a few points in regards to what happens with pets. Um, the, a lot of the, the drugs that are used in dogs are very similar to the drugs that are used in people, and, uh, but the doses are often a lot less. Now, part of the reason for this is that when uh, we're treating people with cancer, we're wanting to get into remission and completely wipe out the tumour cells. And these drugs act on, in a large part, act on rapidly growing cells. So they can have toxicity to other parts of the body. But with, uh, with dogs, we're not necessarily thinking, hey, we've got to get another 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years here. We're thinking, you know, two, four, five, six, seven years might be our normal lifespan of the dog. And if we can suppress the tumor cells for that length of time, then you know, the dog lives a good quality of life and so on. So the drugs don't need to be given at such a high dose. And as a result, we don't get the side effects so much. I'm not saying we don't see side effects. We certainly do because they are, you know, know, very strong drugs. But not sort of the um, problems. Not the same level that people would experience them. No, and, um, you know, they do suffer different drugs. Dogs do get some um, varying signs of side effects, vomiting, diarrhoea and in some cases, in one of the drugs that's used for memory tumours and a lot of other cancers is doxorubicin, and it can actually have an effect on the heart. So we need to make sure the heart's okay, there's a limit, but if we stick within the guidelines, they're relatively safe treatments. Uh, there are some other drugs, and often they're used in combination. So there's a number of treatments. Surgery certainly is, uh, in benign tumours, would be curative, but in some cases then we need to use other things. And just quickly, also, people have actually looked at dietary therapy as again a support and um, there's evidence that uh, um, low low fat high protein diets actually have a supportive function in these uh, patients they're not a replacement for the other treatments but they do help the body to fight off the um, returning cancer cells so there's a lot that can be done but uh, as always preventative is the best medicine so desex your dog early reduces the incidence quite dramatically you're listening to 2NURFM's Pet Chat and in just a moment we'll look forward to talking to Rosalind Nicol from the Victorian branch of the Australian Veterinarians Association about the wildlife and of course the effect that the fires in Victoria have had on them. 2NURFM's Pet Chat right at the moment and David Tabret. We're about to welcome a special guest to the program. We are, Jane. A couple of weeks ago we spoke to Mark Laurie on the program, who's the president of the uh, Australian Veterinary Association nationally, about the immediate response that we'd seen to the um, wildlife and domestic pet issues surrounding the bushfires in Victoria. But there's been a lot of action, and I thought we'd sort of 
catch up with um, what's happening now. So we've got Rosalind Nicol, who's the president of the Victorian Division of the Australian Veterinary Association. Hi, Ros. Hi, David. How are you? Good, good. Thanks very much for um, talking to us today. Um, I've uh, been receiving through the email network updates on what's going on. You're down there with uh, the Australian Veterinary Association are coordinating and have set up the Veterinary Emergency Task Force. Can you tell us a bit about what's been the response and what the task force is there to do? Yes, certainly, David. Um, As we saw with the human situation, there's been a massive outpouring, massive response um, surrounding animals that have been affected by the the fire tragedy. Hmm. Um, There's been... You know, a huge amount of supplies provided by individuals, by our veterinary wholesalers, by our veterinary drug manufacturers, many, many veterinarians, and of course, veterinary nurses wanting to volunteer their time and their skills. And it became quite apparent in the first few days after the fire that there was just so much support available, so many products and skills available that there really needed to be some central coordination. Yep. Um, quite a few of our AVA members were involved in the ground, on the ground doing a lot individually and they really needed help and we could see they needed help. So the um, Veterinary Emergency Task Force was established under the association's umbrella to try and ensure that we get as best as possible the right things to the right people at the right place, um, coordinating you know, products and supplies where they're needed. Yep, yep, for sure. The um, the initial response, as you say, was just this m- massive outpouring both on the human side, but it, I guess it's not so astounding, I was going to say, but also the, the people's um, call to supporting the animals, both domestic and wildlife. What's been the magnitude of the need for uh, animal care down there? Mixed. In some areas on the periphery of the fire, there's been a quite significant amount of care needed for um, stock, for domestic pets, and of course for wildlife. One of the tragedies of this fire, and it's, it's the reason so many human lives were lost, is the intensity and, and the suddenness, really, with which the fire appeared. So, yeah. unfortunately, a large number of animals perished promptly, um, as, as did people, but the peripheral fire areas and we're seeing animals coming out. I think most of the stock are controlled, most of the domestic pet situation is controlled now but of course the wildlife take quite some time to either come out of the bush or to be found in Mm. the bush so um, we're under threat again today with more fires and many of the fires are contained but not out yet so it it continues. Yeah, It's scary to hear the reports that the, the danger has not passed um, you mentioned about stock, so there's um, obviously cattle and horses and sheep, etc., that were in those areas. Is that uh, also a, a function of the Veterinary Emergency Task Force? The yes, the Department of Primary Industries here in Victoria is the, the the body that's primarily responsible for the livestock. But of course, we have veterinarians who deal with clients who own those livestock. So our AVA veterinarians are still very much needed in, in that relationship. Um, yep. And we're, the task force is also working closely with the DPI and with our Department of Sustainability and Environment down here, just trying to keep tabs on, on because of the enormity of the situation, on exactly what's going on and where. And you know the departments might need some private veterinarians that we can tap into to pop into place when needed. Yep, sure. You mentioned about just the personnel getting the right people into the right place. So you've obviously got the support from the veterinary community in terms of the vets and the nurses obviously playing a big role in in the care of injured animals. 
Um, is, there, is, there, is there a need for more uh, people to be there at the moment or is this going to be a prolonged period of time that we need to cycle people in and out? There will be, David, that's correct. There's a, you know, a massive response initially, but what people tend to miss is that there's going to be several weeks needed of, of dressing changes and care for um, particularly wildlife and some of the domestic pets and that the people who've been working at the fire front literally for a couple of weeks will need you know, relief and support as the weeks move on. But we do have... Um, you asked whether we needed more people. We have now extensive lists of people. We've probably got more volunteers than could possibly be used. In fact, <laughs> That's fact, fantastic. Some some of them are quite frustrated that they can't go and do something straight away. So yeah, we're, you know, we're trying to match skill sets to the areas they're needed, and a lot of it's um, kind of almost sort of boring work. You know, sorting through. Um, drugs that have been donated and what have you to make sure that they're mm-hmm. coordinated and can go where they're needed. So it's a lot of behind-the-scenes work, not just dealing with the animals as they come in. You mentioned uh, at the start also about the support from industry. I know that up here in Newcastle we've um, made some, uh, through our own practice and other practices in this area, have made financial contributions through wholesalers to get drugs down there. Um, have have you experienced that as well? That the the um, supplies are, are coming through. It's been wonderful, and this happened on you. Know, the fires were on a Saturday evening. By the Monday morning, a massive response from in industry, from our wholesalers and manufacturers, saying, "You know, the warehouse is open. The truck is waiting. What do you need? What do we want to put in it?" Yeah. Um, you know, at all at, at no charge. It's just been miraculous. And, of course, we've got all our veterinarians and nurses are, are doing pro bono work still, you know, weeks after the fire, still um, putting in very long days and long hours Yeah, yeah. without any fees. Now, Rosalind, you're dealing a lot with uh, cattle and sheep, I'm sure, with stock from farms. Is uh, What's the proportion of that as compared with wildlife that you're dealing with? It is actually considerably less. Um, a lot of the areas were not the primary farming areas, so there's quite a few smaller stockholders in, obviously, the, the, the fires in forest areas. So um, we haven't had large tracts of, of farmland damaged in many areas. Um, the real wildfire, of course, was in forest and um, some primarily affecting wildlife and domestic pets and people with, you know, 20 cows or two or three horses and things. So, um, yeah, some significant numbers, but not like the numbers of wildlife that will have been affected. Um, Ros, just uh, just finishing off um, reading the... Uh the, the whole setup it's it's amazing how um, people have come together and it's a really great lead that this task force has been established is that people have been able to contribute in so many ways from their own um, house by uh, and f- picking up the phone and making donations is there a way that um, if people want to support the animal care is there a way that people can do that through you guys yes the veterinary task force emergency task force has a phone number which is one three hundred two double nine. 381 and that number's there for people to offer their services or their skills or their time but it's also the same number that people ring if they need something and so that's that's why we've set up a coordinating body so that there's the one place people can ring and say i need and we can say well this is the person who can get that to you most promptly yeah all right well look this 
this work, I know the tragedy of it is still there, but there's the the um, the amount of support that um, people have been able to offer and and that you guys also have been able to now coordinate and put it into the right place. That's just fantastic, and I wish you all the best, and um, we might check in again in a couple of weeks and just see how things are going with you. That'd be terrific. Thank you very much for your time today too, David. Much appreciated. Thanks, Rosalind. Thanks, Rosalind. And that number again is 1300 299 381 if you've got services you'd like to offer or uh, or if you're in need in Victoria, which, of course, won't be immediately on <laughs> at this stage. Uh, Rosalind Nicholl, who's the president of the Victorian AVA, the Australian Veterinary Association. And you're listening to 2NURFM's Pet Chat. I'm Jane Klein, Dr David Tabret with us again today. Yes. Um, and oh. your, your calls. Let me just repeat the phone number that people can ring in. If you've got a call you'd like to... Yeah, give us a ring. 49216216 will get you through. But in the meantime, David, something interesting out of Queensland. I, yeah. Um, Currumbin Bird Sanctuary... Okay, not just to go and look at, but they do so much work with wildlife. And in particular, they've noted a problem that happens year after year. Vets will tell you this. We see it all the time. Little baby birds, it's often in spring, when they leave the nest as fledglings, they have to learn to fly. So they flutter down to the ground and the parents often squawk around. And good Samaritans that people are, we try and rescue them. Um, Corumban call it kidnapping because actually they don't need to be rescued. Not always. If maybe if there's predators around like cats and things or, or they've got obvious injuries for sure. But oftentimes this is just their first steps out of the, uh, out of the nest and they actually need to be put back into, uh, just a branch or something nearby. So what they've done to deal with this, because they get thousands of birds brought in. What they've done is they've created a bird rescue kit, which is actually a bucket, and they've drilled holes in it, and and, uh, they put you can put a perch in it. They give you instructions. There's a poster that comes with it, instructions that um, explain about uh, how to care for baby birds and what to do with them, whether they need to go to the vet or do they just need to go back into that area. And, of course, if you've got this bucket and it's got a perch in it, you can actually just then um, take them back into the area and set them up with that. And the parents then come and get them and they get back to where they're supposed to be. Do they post it out or do you have to go and pick it up? No, well, they actually distribute it. I'm just reading. This was in the latest um, issue of The Veterinarian, which is an Australian-wide magazine. Um, they distributed the uh, the bucket kits through... Um, to I think it was 300, 300 veterinary practices in southeast Queensland. We see a lot of it down here. I know at the emergency centre we get people bringing in birds that we check them and they're uninjured. In, in reality, they just need to go back where they belong. So um, we might look into seeing if we can get this. There is a phone number that people can contact them on. Uh, it's at Currumbin Wildlife Hospital about the baby bird rescue kit. It's zero seven double five three four. 0813. So it's 07 0813. I just think that's a fantastic idea for a problem that um, just comes up every year. Yeah. Mm. And mm. unfortunately, you know, we people are just doing the right thing. It's usually. Or they feel like they're doing the right thing. So when did baby birds usually first leave the nest? It varies with the species. Um, the interesting thing is that when they're actually in the nest, they look huge because they're plumped up in their feeding and everything and they're not exercising and they actually have to trim down. So when they come out of the nest, some species are actually bigger than their parents. And, uh, you know, then as they get out and exercise and fly around or start to fly, they start to slim down a bit. So the um, and of course they've got to feed themselves. No more mum and dad coming to feed them all the time. 
So um, it varies. Sometimes it's going to be you know, six weeks up to 10, 12 weeks, depending on the species involved. So is it often a problem that a baby bird will come out, make its first flight or whatever, and land on the ground? What mm. about the dogs and cats around? Well, that's right, and that's, that's probably the time when there's a concern. And we, certainly we do see baby birds that have injuries, or people see them, you know, if they're in the backyard and the cat, cat's got the baby bird in its mouth. Um, and, you know, that's what cats do. That's, that's their thing. But uh, they don't always mix wildlife and cats, for instance. So um, always a good idea to be aware of in your local environment, around your house, if there are nests, if there's birds there that come spring. I mean, it's not so bad now, but um, in springtime they, they're going to fledge and start to come out of the nest. And what they'll often do is they spend the whole day learning to fly. So they'll come down onto the ground, um, probably because mum kicks them out, and, you know, probably like with teenagers, really, you kick them out the door and then they come back for a meal. So, uh, and what happens is the baby bird works its way back up to low branches, then to middle branches and higher branches and finally gets its way back up to the nest. But that can, that can take all day. And, um, of course, we come along and go, oh, you need to be picked up. And helped. Mm. And helped. And perhaps not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to 2NURFM's Pet Chat. And your question's very welcome. 49216216 will get you through to us. It's 20 to 1. And we should mention, David, that Danny Boss isn't with us I'm today. I'm feeling lonely on this side of the desk. <laughs> Danny, if you're listening, we miss your funny hats. And uh, <laughs> No, he's, uh, Danny's, um, he's offered a dog show because that's one of his other loves, of course, is his, um, his dogs. dogs. So yes. he's, he's off showing his dogs. Down at Canberra, I believe, in the ACT. Yeah, I think and so. So we're, we're doing a lot of interstate touching here. Oh, yeah. Um, so I'll have to, we'll have to ring someone in California or someone next week. So um, go international. International, yeah. Well, another thing, uh, another item from uh, interstate, um, crocodiles. Uh, do you ever see crocodiles as pets around here, David? <laughs> Can't say that I have, Jane. There may be regulations Gladly. about keeping. Oh yeah, crocodiles yeah, no, there's de- obviously, here. yeah, there's definitely, and um, uh, we do see snakes and reptiles, and um, there's uh, strict regulations about the um, keeping and uh, control of those. And maybe crocodiles aren't welcome as pets, I according to, to New South Wales legislators, but they are. Uh, it is possible to have them as a pet in South Australia and Victoria, I see from petnews.com.au. They're a bit away from their natural habitat, I should think. Uh, they would be, and I think we're talking not saltwater crocodiles oh, here, but freshwater crocodiles. But the ones that are sold in South Australia, according to this article, uh, are mostly uh, flown from the Northern Territory, from Darwin's Crocodilus Park, or Crocodilus Park, I suppose, or however they pronounce it. Uh, and how do you think they get them down there? They don't give them wings, of course. No. They have specially designed PVC pipes, which have air holes uh, and a wooden base, and that gets them down to South Australia or Victoria. You'd want to make sure it's secure, wouldn't you? You certainly would. Wouldn't want to sit next to that in uh, economy <laughs> class on the flight. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. But one pet shop in South Australia apparently sells up to three crocodiles a year. Which seems like quite a lot. Probably to the same person. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it could well be. (laughs) The interesting thing about um, the the crocodiles, we always hear news, of course, when there's the tragic circumstances surrounding, you know, people being taken or whatever. Um, But uh, in Northern Territory, this is a, a huge business in terms of the farming of crocodiles. 
for various uh, needs for um, skins and meats and so on. So it's a bit it's a big part of the environment up there to um, and obviously there's people who have said okay we, there's um, something we can do here as far as farming and then they'll move animals away from um, urban or habitated where people are into um, into the crocodile farms. So. There's the the safety aspect, but um, yeah, I'm not sure I'd be lining up to buy a pet crocodile. Mm, you wouldn't think they'd return much love, would you? <laughs> not well, like if you come home and find them in the bath. <laughs> well, where else would you put them? <laughs> I suppose they could climb out of that too. That could be a worry. Mm. Yeah, um, no, I don't think I'll go there. I'm, okay, I don't mind the snakes actually, but um, you don't keep my them wife's in the bath. listening, and so she's going, "No, we're not getting snakes." <laughs> <laughs> no, no there's look there's a lot of work in a lot of these pets but to, i call them pets a lot of animals when you take some of these exotic animals that are as they're wild animals and you put them into an environment there you have to be very careful and the structure of everything there's a lot of attention to uh, getting things right and in particular with reptiles i know from when i was working in general practice and we saw a lot of reptiles a lot of the time the issues related to husbandry to the environment to the um you know the uh container or the the cage or whatever they were set up in how often uh, you feed them yeah yeah and people have um some ideas that might be um misunderstood you know information coming from the wrong sources and and things start to go wrong so it's very critical and they're not just uh, you know it's not just like having a dog which is used to living with people for the last 20,000 years um, Before we leave reptiles, then snakes, um, what do they live on if you have them as a pet? What do you feed them? Um, Mice? Yes. Do they have yes. to be live? No, no. They should be dead? They should be, yeah. Um, I'll tell you, my experience was, um, a, look, some pe- there's a lot of controversy about that. Um, there's a training issue because if you just put, you can actually buy dead, frozen mice and rats. They're supplied. And um, what happens is that uh, though snakes are a bit smart, they realise that a frozen mouse is not probably part of their natural diet. So you do have to go through this whole process and you have to get them used to it and taking it. Sometimes people have very long tongs that they use to wriggle the little mouse. And, so that uh, makes so it look alive. Mm, but I did have the experience once of... Um, uh, I remember this fellow, he had this python and he went away for the weekend and his mother had to feed it. And um, and he was actually in the in feeding live food, and uh, so she just threw them out, threw the rat in, um, and normally he stunned them so that that wouldn't harm the snake. Because if the snake doesn't actually eat the rat straight away, the rat will eat the snake, Ooh. or at least bite it in a lot of pieces, which this one did, and uh, required quite extensive surgery to repair the snake. And the snake wasn't that hungry. And probably after that encounter, was even less hungry. <laughs> Certainly would have been. <laughs> What's the most common brand of dog that you see, do you think, in your practice? Well, uh, probably crossbred dogs. But um, of purebred dogs, I'm thinking hmm, cattle dogs, Staffordshires, um, gee, so many different ones. We, interestingly, there was this survey done, which people might have seen in the paper recently, that um, talked about the most common purebred dogs in the Hunter Council regions. And this this was really surprising to me to see Maltese Terriers top of the list in Newcastle, which is fantastic. Um, they're great little dogs, and uh, 
they do give a lot of you know love and companionship um but it was just really surprising to see the little maltese terrier up there you know biffing it out with the labradors number two staffordshire terrier the Bull, staffordshire bull terrier number three and if we looked across all the council regions the staffy is very popular in, in most regions, although I noticed in the Upper Hunter and Gloucester, so probably the Staffy's not so good looking after um, cattle and chasing them. But uh, certainly in the in the urban councils, uh, the Staffordshire is very popular. Maltese Terrier, very uh, popular as well, number two in Port Stephens and Cessnock. Well, Maltese Terriers were bred as lap dogs, weren't they, perhaps? <laughs> perhaps. They certainly oh, suit that image. <laughs> they're, 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 a, they're a Terrier breed, so oh, they were bred to be a Terrier, which is terrier, you know, yeah. a small little dog chasing down... Um, Something. You know, back, back in... Danny would give us the background on the breeds. Yes. Back in the we'll hundreds of years ago... Uh, to chase, um, you know, rabbits and rats and mice, probably to feed them to the snake. Um, <laughs> of course. But, uh, yeah, of course, they've migrated. I don't think they've um, they've got quite that ability anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yes, changed a bit. Now, Rhonda has rung in on 49216216. Hello, Rhonda. You've got a question for David? Yes, I have. Thank you. Hi, Rhonda. Hello. Um, we've got a... We inherited a 15-month-old Ridgeback mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years ago. Pretty highly strung, had a few problems, but we've ironed all that out. Good. Um, he loves his walks. He nags and nags and nags until you take him. Yeah. Well, lately, he's started balking. He won't go down certain streets. And there's been no altercations with other dogs or anything. Do you think there's um, new uh, dogs? Because he could hear things now. He's, his sense of hearing, his sense of smell is so much greater than ours. Yeah. There might be something in that street that he's just not happy with that he can hear or he can smell uh, that um, obviously you're not aware of. Yeah. Well, it was quite funny yesterday. My partner took him for a walk and he he got to a certain street and he wouldn't go either way. So we had to turn around and come home. They're rather fearless too, Ridgebacks. I mean, they they were bred in... um, over in uh, Rhodesia, of course. That, As it uh, used to be. Yeah, it was Zimbabwe to uh, chase lions. Yeah. So well, he's it's mainly to round them up, isn't it? Not yeah. No, no, but maybe he's scared of the Maltese terriers. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're everywhere, well, Rhonda. He's a big pussycat. He's a big pussycat. Oh, yeah. He makes, makes out he's fearless, but when it comes down to tin tacks, he's not. Oh, God he, love him. He'd rather, he'd rather run away from another dog than confront it they're beautiful i'd i'd be thinking that he's probably picking up on some scent that uh that is in that area there might be some dogs that have been up and down that street that have marked the territory and it's sort of like a pheromone saying stay out this is my territory yep so that's probably what's going on if you what's going to happen is he's going to get his walks going to get shorter and shorter he's not he's going to run out of streets (laughs) oh dear you might have to put him in the car and take him somewhere where he can to have a big beach. run around. Maybe to the beach, yeah. Yeah, they love that. Yeah. They love that. So okay. does the scent disappear when it rains? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yes and no, but um, how would we know? Well, we could... Hard to determine. Mm. Yeah. We could get Rhonda to take Rhonda's going to do an experiment. Wait for the next big shower yep. and go out straight after it. Okay. And see if he'll go down the street. Thanks for that. No worries. Thanks, Rhonda. And uh, 49216216. We still do have just a little bit of time left if you have a call for David. And did we... Yeah, dogs. Are they all... (laughs) They're in the news, aren't they? They are in the news. Because, you know, we had this one about all the purebred dogs and the Maltese terriers, which are scaring the Ridgebacks out of streets. 
But uh, interestingly, when they've um, done a survey looking at which dogs are the most naughty, and it's not a good word, but anyway, naughtiest dog breeds, the beagle. Uh, one of my nurses owns a beagle, and um, I'd hasten to say, I'm not sure it's the naughtiest dog breed that I know, but um, they might get themselves into mischief. Interestingly, of course, is the beagles are very, um, you know, trainable because they uh, function as our quarantine dogs and um, down at the airports. So I think it might be a matter of circumstance that we consider the beagle the naughtiest breed. Um, but, you know, maybe a little bit of rehab and training and we'll get them back down the list. Unfortunately, the Labradors um, up near the top and having spent a lot of time with Labradors over the year, I think they're going to stay near the top. Uh, they, badly behaved. Well, no, but, you know, they just love to pick things up and that they shouldn't and they play with things and they just love to do do dog things really do doggy things yeah. so it's all good tempered you reckon I, yeah i think so it <laughs> sounds good um david we have another caller oh Hel- good hello um your name is carol carol hi carol hi how are you good um my daughter's just got a uh, golden retriever yep um he was a giveaway he's seven years old now mm-hmm. he's a lovely dog He's very timid, he's a little bit underweight, but when you walk him, he'll walk for a little while, then he'll stop dead, and he won't move. It could be in the middle of the street, it could be down the road, it could be anywhere. He just stops dead. How far does he walk before he stops? It varies. He could walk for a kilometre, he could work, walk for five kilometres, he could walk for 50 metres. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, now, how long has she had him for? She's only had him for about three weeks now. Okay. Um, There's a number of things could be. Is he otherwise exercising in the backyard normally? No, he's very... Well, I've got a Labrador, Mm -hmm. and compared to my Labrador who's 10, he's very, very sedate. Is he? Yeah. Uh, Because that was one of the things I was wondering, if he's got exercise intolerance, although the fact that he'll walk sort of varying distances suggests that maybe not, that it's just a behavioural issue. Yeah. Um, the other thing that sometimes is that, particularly because he's acquired as an adult dog, is he may actually be used to walking with a, a different um, collar or different habits when he goes for a walk. Yeah. There might be reasons that are in his background. Right. Um, and one of the things you might need to do, or your daughter needs to do, is to retrain um, to walking. And I like, I've mentioned before about the halty collars, which are oh, the, yeah. the, like a um, horse's halter. Okay, and they act on um, pressure points that control the dog without... It's not a choker collar or anything, and it actually no, works quite spectacularly in getting dogs to do what you want them to do. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so they do need to be fitted. They need to be measured up and fitted properly because that's the key to making them work. Yeah. But dogs are always a lot happier to walk with uh, one of those head halters. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yes. Good thing to try. Be worth trying that idea. Absolutely, because the other day she was in the middle of the street and he just... Crossing the road, you stopped dead. And not like a Maltese that you can pick them up and no. carry them <laughs> It's a little bit big. Yeah. Well, yeah. try try the halty because I think that oh. might be certainly something that helps. So where do you get them fitted at, the vet? Yeah, most veterinary clinics will have them. I think pet stops will have them, but as I said, no. you do need to get them fitted. properly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. Thank Thanks for your question, Carol. Thanks, Carol. And time for just one more. Tony joins us. Hello, Tony. Hello. Hi, Tony. Hi, thanks for taking my call. You're right. Um, I wonder if you could shed a bit of light. Our cat uh, has gone off for food. All right. How old's your putty cat? Three. Three years Eight. old. Yep. Uh, big list of things that could be causing this. 
I'd have a look inside his mouth first, Tony. Has he got any um, any vomiting, diarrhoea, any problems like that? Uh, it does vomit uh, occasionally, the, uh, the dry biscuits in the morning that we give him. Okay, is he a long-haired cat? No. No. Um, cats do get fur balls as well, which could make him reluctant to eat so much. But the first thing to do, have a look inside his mouth, make sure there's nothing there, and there's no red line along the gums, which indicates tooth disease. At that age, that would be unlikely. Medical problems that could cause him to go off his food, again, less likely at that age, but certainly might need to be followed up. Um, and if he's uh, reluctant to eat anything at all or is vomiting and bringing food up, I think that's something that needs to be checked out at your local vet. Right. right. All right. There's a number of things that could be causing it, so um, it's something that you need to have him checked at the local vets. And sorry to cut you short, Tony, but we really are running out of time, so thank you so much for your call, and it yeah. sounds as though it needs to be investigated. Yeah. And that's Pet Chat for today, and we'll be back next Friday 8.30.